0: Luke 2, 1 through 20. This is the word of the Lord. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius, the governor of Syria, was governor. And all went to be registered, each to his own town,
1: Well, it has already been an incredible joy this this afternoon to worship and to have little ones lead us in worship. What a sweet expression of what it is to be a part of the body of Christ and to see God working in and through the young and the old alike. We are all meant to be witnesses for Christ. We are all meant to share the testimony of Christ as we're going to hear in just a few moments. But we want to make sure that you realize we have a little tool for you to do this. There are a bunch of these invitation cards to our Christmas Eve service a week from now and they're out in the back there. Grab some. Let's, let's get those out to as many people as is possible uh, this week that we might... Uh, bring folks here next week to hear further about the gospel, the good news of our Savior, the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, would you please, would you please now open your word to us? May your Spirit open our eyes to your word, uh, that we may see and behold wonderful things from the Scriptures. the transformation and joy of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know about you, but uh, Gayleen and I prefer movies that come with a statement at the beginning, this is a true story. We're not too impressed with or nearly so affected by movies that are totally made up or even that make the claim based on a true story, based on true events. You never know how much of what's actually in that movie is true, is accurate. I'm here to tell you this afternoon that the Bible comes to us not based on a true story. It comes to us as a true story. It comes to us declaring, this is true. If you flip in your Bibles back just to chapter 1 and verse 1, we see that Luke, who wrote this gospel, makes sure to, to emphasize this for us. In chapter 1 and verse 1, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have been delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, Luke writes, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, O most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught." Luke declares to us that this is real history. Luke says to us, and Luke, by the way, is recognized even by unbelievers, even by skeptics, he is recognized as a first-rate historian unbelievers look at his writings the book of Luke and the book of Acts and they see his accuracy with reference to times and events and historical figures and they say this man knew what he was talking about. This man got it right. You see Luke is not interested in giving us a story based on the truth. He is interested in giving us the truth. In fact he says that he went to great trouble to research it, to interview eyewitnesses, which almost certainly would have included Mary and Joseph and maybe even the wise or the shepherds that we heard about a moment ago. And he compared the accounts and he came up with a historical narrative that gets the facts straight, so that, in his words, we may have certainty about the things we have been taught. Don't you like to have certainty? Don't you like it to be sure? Some of you may be surprised by this. You may, your way of looking at religion, your way of looking at faith is that it's a bunch of people who just take this blind leap into the dark and they don't take into account reason or facts or history or the rest. But we are here to tell you this afternoon that the faith of Jesus Christ is a true story. That it is an account of how God in Jesus came and He was really born in real time and real space to a real mother. He lived a real life. He carried out a very real public ministry that was profound, uh, was filled with profoundly real teaching and real miracles and real character and then real suffering and then real death and then real resurrection. This is a true story. What I want to do is we move this afternoon and again next Lord's Day afternoon on Christmas Eve, what I want to do is is take a look at Luke chapter 2 and see that it is a faithful narrative of things that actually happened. Take a look at what happened. And then take a look at some applications for us as we get ready to move into 2018 and Beyond. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to review the narrative. I'm going to direct your attention. You're going to want your Bibles open uh, to Luke 2. Uh, and we're going to look at this text. And I'm going, to, I'm going to give us just a bit of a summary of what actually happened. What took place that night. Luke begins in chapter 2 verses 1 through 3 with a a time reference. He, He locates the event of Jesus' birth in history. Notice what he says. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own Town. This is a time reference. This is Luke saying, okay, I want you to know that Jesus was born on a, on a real date, uh, at a real time, this, this really happened and he mentions Caesar Augustus of Rome and then this political underling of his, Quirinius, who by the way in other historical documents are named, these are real people, this, they really lived and this kind of registration and taxation really happened. So Luke says this This is when it happened. But here's, here's what we need to understand. That when Luke says that it was in those days that a decree went out and Caesar Augustus issued this command that everyone would return to their town and there the implication is get taxed. Any first century Jew that was reading this would hear not just a time reference but a culture reference would hear more than just, well, this happened then. They would have heard this happened when certain things were happening. If if I were to say to you, in the days when Hitler passed the decree requiring all people of Jewish descent to wear a badge, you would hear more than a time reference. You would hear a culture reference. You would hear a reference to the times. You would hear a reference to the conditions and the circumstances of that moment. And that is Luke's point here when he mentions this time reference. What he wants us to hear is not just it happened on such and such a date. No, he wants us to hear it happened at such and such a time when Augustus Caesar, the dictator, emperor, Roman oppressor, was once again enforcing on the Hebrew people, enforcing on the world his oppressive dominance, making them leave their hometowns, go to the town of their birth, get taxed again. And every reader would have heard that Luke was saying this isn't about time, this is about times that were hard. This is, this is about a time in history when global political junk was going on. And in that time, Luke is saying, God was on the move. At this time when Caesar, the very title of this man, was enough to make Jewish people... Oh, well, I was going to say throw up, but that's probably not appropriate. So he, it was a title that was enough to... Stir within them a combination of fear and rage and anger and hostility and longing. Oh Lord, deliver us from this guy. And into that moment, that crazy bustling world of godlessness that was clothed with Caesar's power and his might and his politics and his corruption. It's into that world that Jesus came. And while Caesar was going about his ungodly business, God was going about his business. God was taking care of things. While Caesar was doing his thing, God was doing his thing. And in fact, part of God's thing was to take Caesar's thing And turn it around and make it work out for God's thing. Because you'll remember, right, that there was a prophecy back in Micah that said that it would be in Bethlehem that the ruler, the Messiah, would come. And we know from earlier chapters that Joseph and Mary were from Nazareth, so I thought Jesus was to be born in Bethlehem. So how does Jesus get to Bethlehem? Jesus gets to Bethlehem to fulfill the prophecy through, this is wonderful, ironic, glorious, through the decree of a pagan, godless emperor. So God uses Caesar to accomplish his purposes. Folks, don't be fooled by all the noisy sounds of sin and power and politics and corruption that are going on all around us. Don't be fooled that just because it seems like God is silent in the midst of all of it. Don't be fooled into thinking that He is silent or that He is inactive. This, as the hymn writer puts it, this is my Father's world. Oh, let me never forget that though the wrong seems oft so strong, he is the ruler yet. And this text teaches us that while evil powers do their thing, the holy sovereign God will intervene. And he will do his thing. And he will do it to perfection. And so... We notice that after giving this time and times reference, there is then a location reference in verse 4. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. So now Luke just gives us a geographical pointer and key here. He says, now this is where, this is where it happened. Mary and Joseph left their hometown of Nazareth. They went to Bethlehem. And, yeah, I don't know that we really understand how absolutely insignificant these towns were. Nazareth boasted about 400 inhabitants. Archaeology just have found where ancient Nazareth was, and they have measured the footprint of that old town. And it was about 650 feet north to south and about 2,000 feet long. You could fit two or three Nazareths from this wall down Bermont to Garrett Road Take a right on Garrett. Come back in this direction. You could fit two or three Nazareth's inside of that space. This was a tiny town. And Bethlehem was not much bigger. And yet, and yet, this is where Jesus was born. This little insignificant town was where the Savior of the world first laid his head. Now what most matters is that it was Bethlehem because as you know that was David's city and Joseph was a descendant of David which makes Jesus a legal heir to David's throne which means that all of the prophecies in the Old Testament about an heir to David's throne who would rule and reign forever was going to come and this is when he comes. So we come to verses 6 and 7 and a simple narrative of what happened next. While they were there, the time came for Mary to give birth and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. There are three main facts that Luke records for us in beautiful simplicity. The first fact is Mary gave birth to her firstborn. And we might add to her virgin-born son. How how simple the statement is. There's, There's nothing fancy here. It's just she gave birth to her son. Then Luke seems to go out of his way to mention that Mary wrapped her son in swaddling cloths. These would have been strips of cloth, typical for the day for ordinary people who were having a little child. And, And it's interesting to me that it's mentioned twice in the text. He was wrapped in these swaddling cloths. and I don't know for sure, nobody knows for sure why the Holy Spirit inspired Luke to include that detail, but... Something tells me that it was meant to be in contrast to the birth of a king in royal children's clothes. That it was meant to be in contrast to riches and wealth. So we have this birth of Jesus and he's an ordinary baby to all appearances, sleeping in a very humble place. Notice... Mary, when she had finished giving birth and wrapping her son Jesus in these swaddling claws, laid him in a manger. And notice the reason you know it well, but notice it afresh because there was no place for them in the inn. She began to slow down and take a look at the text. Don't you begin to notice some of these details? You know, here was. Luke makes the point of identifying Jesus' lowly hometown, Nazareth, and his lowly birthplace, Bethlehem, and his lowly, his mother's lowly delivery room, a manger, and his lowly and humble cradle, a cattle trough, and his lowly outcast, unwelcome status. There was no room for him in the inn. And his lowly, humble, or at least very ordinary, baby clothes. So you have, against the backdrop of the first three verses of this mighty emperor making his decrees, you have this picture of this wonderful Savior coming in lowliness and humility and poverty. Even an outcast. And so we look at the text and it seems as if, well, that's that. Pretty, pretty humble. and Mostly unseen and unheard. But then we realize, okay, there is a birth announcement. Look at verse 8. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Here we, here we have an angel sent from heaven to make a birth announcement to a few shepherds that were out in the field. Not made to the whole world. Not made to the rulers and the powers of that time. Meant, made to a few shepherds. Understand, shepherds also were considered lowly. They were low lifes in those days. They were not trusted. They were outcasts. They were, they were dirty. They were filthy. They were very often thieving. And, and that's the group of people. That God has this angel make a birth announcement too. I was thinking about birth announcements. We men aren't very good at them. I don't know how many times early on in married life as news came in, uh, somehow or other through my years that so-and-so's baby was born. And I get home and I tell Gayleen, hey, so-and-so had their baby. You know the questions, right? You know how this goes, right guys? Boy or girl? Oh, I didn't think to ask. How long? How much did the child weigh? Is the mother okay? None of which I thought to ask. I don't know. I don't know. We men aren't very good at birth announcements. The angel got this one right. Now, he didn't bother with how long and how much does it weigh, but the angel got it right. The angel came to the shepherds and said, I've got good news. I've got an evangel. I've got good news. And in fact, it's good news of great joy. And the word that is used there in the Greek is mega joy. I've got good news of mega joy that will be for all the people. That is, it is for everyone, not just for you. And here it is, shepherds, unto you is born this day. Unto you is born this day in David's city, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This is news of great joy About a Savior Lord who is a personal Savior. Unto you is born this day a Savior. And He is a global Savior. It is good news for all the people. For all the people. Then the angel goes on to say, and here's how you'll be able to tell who He is. Go into Jerusalem and find a manger. Find the manger that has a little baby in the feeding trough. A little baby wrapped in swaddling cloths. And there and then you will know that your Savior has come. And the narrative then concludes with a series of responses. First from the angels, then from from the shepherds, and then from Mary. In verses 13 and 14, at this news, heaven itself responds. When the announcement is made, it says in verse 13, Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom He is Please. suddenly the heavens open. Suddenly, at this birth of Jesus, at this announcement, the heavens cannot contain their joy. The heavens are opened and a whole host of angels appears to these few shepherds in the field and they begin to sing glory. Glory to God in the highest. And on earth peace. And on earth peace. In Hebrews 1, we have this interesting text where we read that it says, When the Father sent his Son into the world, he said, Let all God's angels worship him. Never put that together with this text until this week. What, why did these angels suddenly appear? Because the Father looking down on His Son who was willing to become one of us, His Son who was willing to take on human form, that He might die for human beings, the Father looking on as His Son humbled Himself in that way, the Father was so filled with joy, so filled with praise in His own heart for the Son, that He said, let all the angels praise Him. Let all the angels praise Him. And I don't know if that meant that every single angel in the universe appeared in the sky to make up this host. All I know is there were a lot of angels on earth and in heaven praising Jesus. That's how the angels responded. Then you have the the shepherds, their response in verses 15 and 16. and the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told them. These shepherds, upon hearing from the angel, their, their response, first of all, was an eager, almost obedience. They dropped everything. They dropped everything they were doing. And they, it says they hurried. They made haste to find Mary and Joseph, and then that turned to witness as soon as they had seen the Christ child, as soon as they they had visited their Savior, it says that they made known the saying everywhere they went. There was immediate witness, and then there was joyful praise. They returned glorifying and praising God for all they had heard. So the angels broke out in angelic worship, the ultimate hallelujah chorus. And then the shepherds, upon hearing this news, they made haste to go see Jesus. They made haste to go to the Savior. They hurried to their Savior. And then having seen Him, they told others about Him. And then having told others about Him, they turned their faces and their hearts toward heaven and they glorified and praised God for all that happened. And that is Luke's account of the birth of our Savior. It leads us to ask the question, what does it mean to us? Or how do we apply this account to our lives? What I would like to do in my remaining few minutes Today and then again next week is to give you four or five answers to that question. Just a couple here today. There is, I believe, in this account, first of all, a mercy to receive. There is a mercy for us to receive. What is that mercy? Well, in verse 11, we are told that Christ, the Savior, is born. In verse 14, we are told that this salvation that Jesus brings would lead to peace on earth. Peace with God. There is a mercy here. It is a mercy of God's salvation that leads to peace. A Savior was born. Peace has come. A Savior is born. We know from Matthew's account, His name shall be called Jesus. Why? You know the answer. Why is His name called Jesus? For He will save His people from their sins. His name will be Jesus because He's Savior. And He saves His people from their sins. No wonder the angels sang peace on earth. No wonder the shepherds rejoiced. There was mercy here to receive. There was the mercy of salvation, the mercy of peace. Paul says in 2 Timothy, or 1 Timothy, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He is a friend of sinners. So if you're here today as a sinner, then this mercy is for you. If you don't think you are a sinner, then I'm not sure why you're here. This, this church and any true church that's preaching God's Word is, is for sinners. It is sinners who need Jesus. It is Jesus who says, I am a friend of sinners. You say, well, I'm, I'm, I don't think I'm a sinner. Well, let me, let me just quickly, very quickly, just help you to see the truth. Let me help you to see the truth. Let me just run through the Ten Commandments real quick. Can we do this? Here we go. We'll do this quick. First Commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. That means you are to love God more than any person or possession or position there is. And if you have ever in your life loved anyone or anything more than God, you are a sinner who needs Christmas mercy. The commandment said you shall not misuse the Lord's name. That means you shall never curse others with his name. And you shall not dishonor the Lord's name by using it flippantly and casually. And you shall certainly not dishonor his name by taking an oath with it and then breaking the oath. Do not say, I swear to God I'm going to do this and then not do it. If you do that, you're a sinner who needs Christmas mercy. Scriptures say, honor the Sabbath day. That means if, if, if you have failed to make one day in seven holy unto the Lord for worship and for rest, then you're a sinner who needs Christmas mercy. The Scriptures say we're to honor father and mother. So if, if you have ever in any way, in word or action, dishonored mom and dad, you're a sinner who needs Christmas mercy. The Scriptures say, if you, commit, you are not to commit adultery, so the Bible makes very clear that that means that if you've ever committed adultery, if you've ever had sex with someone who's not your spouse, or if you've ever, Jesus said, even fantasized about someone who is not your spouse, or if you've ever done porn or watched stuff on television or movies that portrayed stuff in a way that got you going, then... You're a sinner who needs Christmas mercy. We all are. If you've ever killed anyone or for that matter, merely cursed anyone and wished harm on anyone, or hated, or abused, or mistreated another human being in any way, that means you're a sinner and you need Christmas mercy. If you've ever stolen anything, taken money or time that belonged to somebody else, or withheld money or provision from somebody who needed that from you, then you're a sinner and you need Christmas mercy. If you've ever borne false witness, which means if you've ever passed on any rumor or accusation about anyone that was not absolutely proven to be true. And by the way, a CNN or Fox News headline is not proof. And nor is social media posts. If you have ever passed along an unproven rumor or have shared a bad report about another human being that wasn't necessary to be shared, then you have violated the ninth commandment. You're a sinner who needs Christmas mercy. Or if you've ever coveted what somebody else has, being discontented with what you have, then you're a sinner, as am I. Who desperately needs Christmas mercy? We need a Savior. We need Christmas mercy. And if up to this moment you have been too proud to admit that you are a sinner, then you are a sinner who is too sinfully proud to admit that you're a sinner, which makes you an even worse sinner who desperately needs Christmas mercy. Christmas mercy is about the salvation that Jesus wrought for us in His birth, and in His life, and in His death, and in His resurrection. It is about that salvation where He took all of those sins that I've just described for everyone in this room, and, and the whole world, He took them upon Himself, and He bore them all on the cross, and as the Lamb of God took away the sin of the world. You need that Christmas mercy. You need that forgiveness. You need that atonement. You need that mercy. So do I. And not just once, but over and over and over and over again. There is a mercy here to receive through repentance and faith. And if you never have, you walked in here and perhaps a sinner who didn't know it, or perhaps a sinner who did know it, but didn't know what to do about it. Let me proclaim to you this good news of great joy. Unto you is born. Unto you is crucified, is buried, is risen, is reigning, is returning, a Savior, who is Christ, the Lord. And if you will receive Him by faith, if you will do by faith what the shepherds did that night, they made haste to go to Jesus. They made haste to go find their Savior. If you will, in your own heart, hurry to Jesus. Just leave your, your life of sin, your life of self behind and say, I need Jesus. I need Christmas mercy. I need an atonement. I need a deliverer. I need a Savior. I need Him. If you will, you will walk out of here with good news ringing in your heart and salvation in your soul. There is here a mercy to receive. Don't miss. The opportunity. There is, secondly, this is dangerous, the clock is not working here. And my son, bless his heart, gave me a watch for Father's Day. It's one of these watches where the, the hand is the same color as the face of the watch so that this 59 year old man can never see what time it is <laughs> so between the clock broken the watch ineffective you are at my mercy today <laughs> can anyone tell me what time it is 5:15 let me give to you secondly that there is in this text a manger to imitate. A manger to imitate. Not just a mercy to receive, but a manger to imitate. My friends, I do believe that the Holy Spirit inspired Luke to put verses 11 and 12 together to stun us with the condescending, -condescending, self-condescending, self-renouncing, self-sacrificing love of Jesus. Look at these two verses. Verse 11, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. He is Christ the Lord. The term is speaking of his deity it is speaking of his majesty it is speaking of his glory it is it is reminding us that he is the lord of the old testament he is the lord of creation he's the lord of history he's the lord who sat on the throne that Isaiah saw in Isaiah 6 who was high and lifted up and the angels could not bear to even look at him because he was so full of glory and of majesty. It is that Lord that Luke says is now in a manger. He he has left that throne. He has left that throne. And he's now lying in a pile of hay. This is the way of Jesus. God in Jesus Christ came in manger humility and self-renouncing love to visit and to live among and to care for and to love and to forgive and to save the lowly. He renounced His majesty and emptied Himself And made Himself nothing that He might come down to our level and lift us up to His. This is manger love. This is humble love. And and friends, I'm convinced that this is a main theme of the book of Luke. Because as you read through it from chapter to chapter, you see this same theme come over and over again. Let me, let me give this to you. In chapter 1, we're told that Jesus was committed to lift up the lowly and to feed the hungry. In chapter 2, He inhabits a manger and welcomes dirty shepherds. In chapter 3, He identifies with us by living under the law of God, the law that He instituted. In chapter 4, He lets Himself face temptations like ours and then rescues the poor and the blind and the captive and the oppressed and the demon-possessed. In chapter 5, he heals the leper and eats with sinners and outcasts. In chapter 6, he heals the infirmed and blesses the poor and satisfies the hungry. In chapter 7, he eats and drinks with sinners again as their friend and then he rescues an immoral woman from the streets. In chapter 8, he numbers a group of formerly demonized and defiled women among his friends and then he sits and talks with a man so possessed by evil that his community had him chained out among the caves. In chapter 9, he foretells his sufferings and death for sinners and then heals a boy with an unclean spirit. In chapter 10, he reveals himself to those with childlike faith rather than to the wise and the sophisticated. And then he celebrates a Jewish despised Samaritan over a priest and a Levite. In chapter 11, he distances himself from earthly powers and priests, from the high and the mighty by rebuking their abuses and sins. In chapter 12, he rebukes the grasping rich and honors the generous poor. In chapter 13, he heals a woman with an unclean disability and teaches that the outcast and the stranger and the alien will recline at his table. In chapter 14, he heals the diseased and promises to exalt the humble and invites the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind to eat at his table. In chapter 15, he finds the lost sheep and welcomes home the prodigal son. In chapter 16, he welcomes the poor man, Lazarus, into paradise and sends the rich man to hell. In chapter 17, he cleanses ten lepers. In chapter 18, he promises hope to the poor and the oppressed. And then justifies and forgives a humble sinner instead of a smug priest. Then he takes time to hold and bless young children and heal a blind beggar. In chapter 19, he visits and eats with Zacchaeus, a cheating, thieving tax collector, and then weeps over Jerusalem. In chapter 20, He defends the cause of the widows. In chapter 21, He praises the generosity of a widow. In chapter 22, He cares for and eats with His hurting, beleaguered disciples and forgives them for their failing love. And then He willingly submits Himself to abuse and mockery from the very sinners He came to save. In chapter 23, He goes to the cross, bearing in His body all our sins and the curse we deserve. Atoning for sinners in our room instead and pleading that the Father would forgive us. For we do not know what we're doing. And in chapter 24, he rises from the dead and makes sure to appear first to formerly unclean women to assure them of his victory. And then he appears to weak, doubting disciples to prove that he was alive. This is manger love from the stable all the way to the other side of the empty tomb. This is the Lord humbling himself for our sakes. And my friends, I believe it is a manger to imitate. Let this Attitude be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God, equal majesty, equal glory, equal recognition, equal praise, did not consider that something to cling to, to grasp, but he emptied himself. He made himself nothing by taking the form of a servant and being made in the fashion of a man, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. Let this attitude be in you. Imitate manger love. Imitate Christ's crucifixion. Live your life for others as Jesus lived his life and died his death for you. Ministry and mission are messy. The people God wants us to reach will often be people with whom, in our flesh, we don't want to be. The people God is calling Risen Hope Church to reach are people who are hurting, who are dirty, who are filled with shame and sorrow and need, and brokenness. God says to us, let this attitude be in you which was in my son. Enter into the world of the broken. Enter into the world of the messy. Enter into the world of the lonely. Enter into the world of the outcast. Enter into your world in all its mess and love people where they are. Love them as they are. And then lead them to the one who can make all things new. And say to them, Unto you is born this day a Savior who is Christ the Lord. But add to the words a life to match. Jesus didn't just proclaim salvation. He came and made it happen. May we be a congregation. May you, from whatever church you are a part of, May you be a part of a congregation. May we be a congregation that practices manger love in our generation. So there was a mercy to receive. There was a manger to imitate. And you'll have to come back next week for the rest. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you please... Please, please, write these things upon our hearts. Transform our lives. In Jesus' name.